The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible, John chapter 1, we are going to open to John chapter 1, and we are looking at our series on the Reformation, and this will be uh, looking at, uh, we looked at... uh, the first of the solas, by the way, if you want to see a, a cool t-shirt, um, Dan is like a super nerd, and he's got all the five solas on his t-shirt, and so uh, you can look at him after we <laughs> see, look, represent. Uh, and so uh, last week we looked at the Word of God. This week we're talking about um, Christ alone, um, and so in terms of what the five solas represent, last week was Scripture alone, this week we're doing Christ alone, and... Uh, they all go together to represent the, 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 we were using the analogy of a house last week, right? The analogy of a house, so like you have like the foundations. And so basically, how do you know what the gospel is? We have God's word who tells us what the, what the gospel is. But then what does the gospel mean? Like, what does it mean personally for us? And that's why we have Christ alone as the next moment in our uh, series on the Reformation. So what I'm going to do is we're going to read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. And then we're going to look at what this point on Christ alone meant for the Reformation and means for us today. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, John bore witness about him and cried out, this, is, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get this clear and amazing and breathtaking picture of who Jesus is. And we ask that you would bless us as we look at your word to see Jesus as our only need. We ask you to do this by the Holy Spirit. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever thought about 
uh, committing a heist. Do you know what I mean when I say a heist? <laughs> like robbing a bank? Like, have you ever watched Ocean's Eleven and you, if you like, walked out from that and you thought, that doesn't seem so hard, right? <laughs> Fort Knox, have you ever thought about robbing Fort Knox? Fort Knox has 2.3% of all the gold ever refined in the world, which represents $180 billion. It sounds like a pretty good take for me. I could probably walk away with that. Um, I'm, yeah, it'd be a little heavy. <laughs> I... I, whenever I watch like Ocean's Eleven, I always kind of think like I know that it's wrong, but what would it be like to try to do like to commit a heist, right? But the, the main reason of why it's wrong, right, and, and the reason you shouldn't do a heist is that the money does not belong to you, right? <laughs> like that's like apart from like how cool it would be to use all those gadgets, which would be pretty cool. Um, the money doesn't belong to you. That's the main problem, right? Like you're taking something that just inherently does not belong to you. And that is a bit of a heist idea, is a bit of what's going on at the beginning of the Reformation. Um, just to, to break it down for you, you have Protestants, and the reason they're called Protestants is because they are protesting something. And the Reformers, uh, so Luther, Calvin, Knox, uh, John Knox was a Scottish guy, right? So you think Braveheart, think the Scottish uh, Reformer. Um, you have a whole bunch of other guys. You ha- uh, they were all protesting. They saw a heist going on in uh, the church of the day. And so here's, um, here's kind of like one of the, the presenting issue right, that was going on during the Reformation. Uh, we use the term indulgences. I don't know if you guys know indulgences. Uh, John Tetzel was a guy going around, and he had this little phrase, you know, whenever the, the coin in the, co- in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, right? So that's... Uh, <laughs> That's a legit, it's a straight quote. Um, but Luther, when he came uh, to the door in Wittenberg and nailed the 95 theses, not the 95 reses, but the 95 theses to the door, he um, was protesting this practice of indulgences. So let's break down a little bit of what was going on. So here's what was going on in the Catholic Church of the day. They viewed the, the, the death of Christ on the cross they said, okay, that paid for all of your mortal sins. Mortal sins are kind of like, you know, you ever hear of like uh, the seven deadly sins? Like the big deal things, right? The things that like definitely separate you from God. So Jesus on the cross paid for your mortal sins. And that, that um, he paid for all the big things that separate you from God. But then there's all these remaining kind of, they called them venial sins, right? They're kind of like, um, like the dirt you get on your shoes or like the muck that gets on your pants when you're walking through like a muddy field. Right, they're things that kind of like you can't help but kind of do during your life, but they're not like going to you know majorly separate you from God, but they're not like great. So Jesus paid for your mortal sins, but what happens with your venial sins? He's kind of like you know white lie type stuff. Like what do you? How do you take care of that stuff? Well, the way they viewed that is uh, specifically Abraham and Mary, and then all the saints that the church had said, hey, these people, they weren't just real, they weren't just good. They were super good. And all their extra super goodness now goes into a treasury that we can have access to, right? So if Jesus paid to get rid of all your major sins, all these saints, they accrued extra merit that we get access to. And the, re- the way we get access to it, thankfully, the Pope has the keys. And the Pope distributes who gets this merit. So that's how they viewed it, right? So... Um, you can imagine, like, if I had, like, one-way tickets into Fort Knox, 
Like, hey, here's this fort, this ticket, but um, I'm going to give it to you for free. But I'm going to give you. I need a little bit of uh, some love offerings <laughs> to get this extra stuff, right? So I'm going to. The Pope would charge amounts to get access to those merits, right? So he could give it to you, and that's actually one of. If you ever read the 95 Theses, one of the things that Luther says is like, if the if the Pope loves us so much and he has free access to all these this merit. Why doesn't he just give it to us for free? So it was a bit of a heavenly racket that was going on, right? The Pope was charging money to get access to these uh, the indulgences, which was how you get the merit to get rid of all your kind of venial sins, right? You guys tracking with me here? And so you could do this on behalf of other people. So that's what was going on, right? The, the church was charging for all these, uh, you know, get rid of all these sins. So you could be in purgatory for 200 million years. And um, if that was my mom, I didn't want her to be in, in purgatory, getting kind of scrubbed clean for all eternity, for two, 20 million years. And I could pay 100 bucks and get a million years knocked off. Well, why wouldn't I? So that was, they were protesting that because what's just happened in all of that stuff that I've just kind of laid out, right? You have all these saints with all their merits that the Pope now has access to and the Pope distributes. By the way, this still continues today. The Saint uh, Pope Francis uh, made I mean, the irony of ironies. It's like a jubilee year for indulgences this year. Like it's incredible. But so this still goes on. But what's happened in all that stuff? Merits, saints, popes, indulgences. Who's missing from that picture? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, you guys are great. <laughs> this is real easy. Jesus has been moved out from the center of that whole picture. And that is what the reformers were like, bro, this is not cool. <laughs> like you have now taken the main purpose, the main point, the center of the Bible and the universe, and you have displaced him. You have taken him out of, the, you've, you've moved him into the equation. He's still there, but there's all this other stuff that makes it seem like it's Jesus plus something else for the Christian life. And so the reformers are going after this main point of the Latin solus Christus, Christ alone. He is our only access point. Only Jesus will be the center of the Christian life. And they are hammering, hammering, hammering away at that. So that's why we're looking at John 1 this, this evening. We don't want Jesus to be displaced. We want Jesus to be the center. We want Jesus, always and only Jesus, to be the center of our Christian lives. So, as we look at John 1, the main point of what we're looking at is Christ alone is always and only the center of the Christian life. Everything will hinge on him. Everything will revolve around him. And so what we're going to look at, we're going to look at John 1, we're going to see that Jesus centers our reality. He centers our identity. He centers our loyalty. And then Jesus centers our testimony. So we're going to see these four things that center around Jesus. Now, the, the, the main challenge that I've had with this whole series on the five solas is that the reality is that you could talk about every one of them from any point in the Bible, especially this one. So there's more that we could say about what Jesus is in terms of the center of everything. But these are the four things we're going to be looking at tonight. Jesus centers our identity, our reality, our identity, our loyalty, and our testimony. So we're going to look at John 1, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to see that Jesus centers our reality. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So if, you know any, if you've been around your Bible for about five seconds, you know you can pick up that John 1 is picking up on this language from Genesis 1. Right? Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then John 1, in the beginning, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a literal, like you just take the exact Greek, uh, the Greek alliteration of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the same words. In the beginning was the word. And so he is making a pretty clear statement. The word is the one that was at the beginning. And it goes on to say that the word created all things. So uh, Jesus was not the first creation. Jesus, the word, was with God and was God. It's clear Trinitarian. You have the Son of God and God the Father. And John is trying to capture in this language, you have God, one, pers- one God, three persons, and the Son of God is speaking. He is within the Father, the Father's self-expression, God the Father's self-expression of what he loves about God. And Jesus is speaking the world into existence. So we are going back into like the the primeval age of everything. And there we see the word speaking and creating all things. Which is helpful to see that at the very beginning, we have a personal God. Right? That is one of the crazy things about Christianity is that Christianity says God is a personal being who communicates with God about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before anything has to be created. God is communicating and expressing and loving and delighting in and enjoying God. In the beginning was the Word. That's all that's captured in that. God is self-expressing. God loves God and delights in the joy of who God is before anything else is created. But then God creates the world to express himself in creation. And so here's one of these crazy things um, about what that means for us is that um, we live in a day and an age where uh, secular humanism or atheism or any, basically anything that's not Christianity has a very difficult time explaining why the universe has people in it that are self-conscious. Have you ever thought about this? Like, if Jesus and the Bible are not true, how did the world have material things that then become self-aware that they are material beings? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, how does, how does matter become self-aware that it is itself matter? Right? It, it's, it's a weird creation. It's a weird reality that, that apart from a God who is self-aware and self-expressive, which is only true in Christianity... There's no way to explain how the world has self-aware creatures in it. It's a bit of an apologetic for why Jesus is the most important part of, this, of the Bible and creation. Because apart from Jesus, we're not able to, to have, like, how do the chemicals in my brain have a personality and have meaning and have validity and have a self-awareness of the universe? Because there, there's not a way to be personal. Like built into the chemicals, right? In your in your dish soap, there's nothing that's self-aware about your dish soap, right? <laughs> but you're self-aware. That's because you have a God who is personal and intimate and loves to delight in and experience. So as we're seeing at the beginning here, the very beginning of creation, you see Jesus saying, 
I love being a personal God. And I'm going to create people to reflect me. Which means the first, so not only is that a, a, uh, an apologetic, you might say, for Christianity, but it's also, wow, God, God has created me to talk to him. Rachel just prayed for us about we can talk to God. <laughs> That's because God created us to engage and love and talk to him. Because he is a personal being. So there in verse 5, if you look at me, the light shines in the darkness. So not only is this, we're talking about a personal being, verse 1, but verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we're not talking about just a personal being, but we're talking about Jesus who is a pure and good. He is, as verse 4 says, the light of life. He has within himself the purity, the brightness, the life that we all yearn for and desire. It is within Jesus himself. But it contrasts it. The light shines in the darkness. That darkness is not a passive reality. That darkness, as we can all look at the world around us, as we all look at our own hearts, that darkness is proactively against God. That darkness rages against God. It comes after God. It is personal. Just as God created the universe to be personal, this darkness is personally against God. And the darkness, even though it is personal and fierce, the light shines in the darkness. So Jesus comes down into our lives, into the dark realities of who we are, into the dark realities of our lives and our culture. And the darkness has not overcome it. Right, the core reality of what this means, the, the, the how Jesus centers our reality, is that the dark things that we experience in our lives, the dark things that we do, the dark things that we experience that are done to us, they are not the defining, overarching, conclusive statement about our lives. If the universe begins with Jesus starting out bright and beautiful and saying, I will because I want to and I want to create and I want to these people to enjoy me and to delight in me, and to experience true life, that darkness that we experience and have and commit will not define our lives. That means, guys, we can't be given over to cynicism. We, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Our culture is a cynical culture, right? <laughs> the moment anything good starts happening, ah, well, they're probably getting paid off. You know, uh, well, all politicians are liars. And he, they're all dirtbags, which might be true, but... You know what I'm saying? Like, anything is going good. Like, I've thought this too. Like, I've thought in the past, I've had this experience where, um, so we believe in the gift of prophecy, which God spontaneously giving things for his people to share and encourage each other. And I've heard them for over 10 years now. And I've heard one, I remember at one point, I remember thinking like, man, like, they always go after the same stuff. It's like, people are like struggling. And like, why is it always about like encouraging people where they struggle? Like, is that really God speaking? Like, well, that's the nature of the gift. Like, why are you questioning, why, why do you assume that those people are just like always revisiting Hallmark and going to the sad aisle um, to try to give people encouragement for God's people? It's because God loves to speak into the darkness and won't let the darkness begin to define our lives. It, Jesus centers our reality because it means that at the end of the day, we have no reason to be cynics. <laughs> We have every reason to be the most joyful, hope-filled people because the darkness that, has def- that we commit, the darkness of, of the things that have been done to us, 
the darkest realities that we walk through and don't seem to go away, the shades in the afternoon that don't seem to have any hope of changing, they will one day be wiped away by the pure, brilliant light of Jesus coming into our lives and renewing all things. And we begin to experience that now as a church. We get to see Jesus coming and slowly the light, we change. I I love that he starts out by saying light because it's like we're all little plants. And when we get a little bit more light, we begin to grow and grow and grow. Isaiah calls us oaks of righteousness. We grow in his light. His light, in verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. That is the life and hope that centers our realities, right? Before we wake up in the morning and wonder, why is the to-do list so bad and so long? Why is this not changing in my life? Why are these people still giving me um, heartache or problems? No, the center reality of our lives is that Jesus is pure and true, and he has shown his light upon us. We have every reason to walk into the day filled with joy and hope because, yes, these things are horrible, or this is going to be a long road for change. But that darkness did not overcome the light. Because the gospel is that Jesus, the light, came into our darkness. And at the end of John's gospel, what ha- what, do you guys remember what happens on the cross? It goes dark. <laughs> it goes dark. On the, the light appears to be consumed by the darkness. But then the, the, noon, the, the morning light of Easter hits and the light kills and destroys the darkness that seemed to try to kill him. The gospel is all about the light triumphing over the darkness of our lives. Jesus is the center of our reality, and Jesus alone, not a job, not a church, not sex, not a hobby, not a spouse, not a TV show, nothing else will be able to fill in for centering and guiding our realities. Right? Only Jesus. So the second thing we're going to see is Jesus centers our identity. If you look at verse 9 with me. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, of God. You see, this is the gospel story, right? Jesus came to the people that he told what he was coming to. All the Old Testament is a preview. Jesus is coming. Your king, your Messiah is coming. He's coming. This is what he's going to be like. He's going to be gentle. He's going to heal people. He's going to give you the good words of of God. And then when Jesus shows up and fulfills all those things, verse, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Right? He is rejected. His identity is called into question. Because they didn't know their identity as people who needed him. His identity as a savior king was called into question. You are not what we expected. We do not want a lamb to come and die in our place. We want a king to come over and pound and destroy our enemies. Right? That's what they wanted. Who are you is at the core of this whole paragraph, right? Because it ends, we become children of God. Jesus' identity is called into question. They don't receive him because he says of, because of who he is. And then it ends, well, this is who you are, right? So Jesus centers our identity 
which is uh, identity is all the rage right now. Like in our culture, the, the term gets used as identity politics. Regardless of that, it's a part of who we are and how we think about things, right? I am a blank. Therefore, I deserve to be treated like blank, right? I am an incredibly strong guy. I deserve to be treated as though I am Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> right? I, we, we do this equation all the time, right? It is, I am a, whatever the issue is, now I get to tell you how I get to be treated, right? So out of our identity flows how we get treated. And there's a validity to that in, some, in many ways, right? I am a victim of blank. I deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. That is totally true. And we should always honor that. But it gets perverted, right? And there's major ways it gets perverted in our culture today. But it's more of on a functional level for us, right? I am the husband and father of my home. I deserve to be respected. The equation makes sense. But then I turn it into an idol. And I start pounding people in my family. Not physically. Why are you not respecting me? Why are you disregarding me? Why are you not treating me the way I deserve to be treated, right? That's how we do this identity thing. Those, all those anger things that we do, those come out of a sense of our expectations of who we are, of our identity, right? I don't deserve to be treated this way. I deserve to be treated a better way than the way you're treating me right now, right? Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His identity were that they were his people. He deserved to be treated with being received, being accepted, and honored. His identity was being questioned. Our identities are in question when we get angry, when we get frustrated, when we get jealous, when we're proud, when we lust after things that are not ours, when we tell other people explicitly or implicitly how we should be treated. Right? It's even the sense of, like, for me... um, I want to be acknowledged as a good pastor. <laughs> and so if I get the sense of like, well, nobody's patted my back this week and said, oh, Jacob, you are the best pastor that has ever lived. Please be my pastor until I die and bury me in the grave. <laughs> if I don't get that, I somehow am like, my identity and worth is in question, right? <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy because what that means is not only am I insecure about my identity before God, but that means that I'm now demanding that you serve my identity issue, right? You now become a pawn to make me feel good, which not only deprives you of dignity and worth, but it, it begins to shrink me on the inside, right? I've now become the arbiter of what my identity is and how you treat me. You see the story of the gospel in these verses is that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And on the cross, he was not received by the Father so that we could be received by the Father. You see, he took our place, the darkness, the rejection that we give to God, he took our place of rejecting God and the wrath that we deserve for that, he took our place so that we could be received, right? You see the whole... The, 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 the irony of the gospel is that it keeps turning the world upside down. We expect God to reject us if we reject God. But God the Son came and took our place. We did not receive him, though he made us. 
We didn't receive him. So then, so that we could be received by the Father because the Father wants us to be his children. But there's this whole thing of sin and darkness that separates us from God. Jesus came and took our place so that he would not be received by the Father on the cross. My God, my God, why have you rejected me? (laughs) It's because he took our place. We deserve to be rejected. So that then, look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, right? How did they receive him? Well, they believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. So here, we're going again at the identity thing. Jesus centers our identity. And how do we become children of God? Not by blood, not by the will of the flesh, not by man, but by the gracious will of God. God makes us children in Jesus so that then our identity is secured in who Jesus is and not our identity that we want to make up on our own. (laughs) Your identity, whatever you want to make it, I deserve to be respected, honored, adored, thought as being handsome or beautiful, being fit, being the best, That will be a crushing idol. It will be a crushing identity because you will never measure up. But Jesus, who is the true and perfect and good one, if you rest your identity in him, right? Those who believe in his name, his name is right, my name's wrong. That's what it means. He's good, I'm not, I'm resting in him. When we rest our identity in him, our identity becomes as secure as who he is. And who is he? He's created everything. He has paid for all of our debt, and he has now secured our place as children of God, right? God does not have stepchildren, just so you know. God does not have foster children in his house. We take foster children into our homes because we want to care for the people in our neighborhoods, in our cities, because their parents are, for whatever reason, not able to take care of them. So we express the heart of the Father here. And how we, t- how we treat and take in foster kids and care for people without parents in our neighborhoods in our city. But in God's family, there are no foster children. There are full children with full access because of a full savior who has given over his full identity to the children. Right? So we get treated the way Jesus gets treated. So our identity in the morning when we wake up is not, oh, my to-do list is so long. Oh, I've done these horrible things in my life. Well, Yes, those things are realities. But your identity and how God orients towards you and thinks about you will not rest on how good the church is, how good your devotion times are, how much you've prayed, how much you've done right. It will totally and only, always and only depend on Jesus and his identity. Jesus centers our identity because of who he is and what he has done. And it's a new identity. Not ours that we make. It is only, always, Jesus. All right, we're going to pick up verse 14. Jesus centers our loyalty. So we've been following this through, right? Jesus centers our reality, verses 1 through 5. Jesus centers our identity, verses 9 to 13. And Jesus centers our loyalty, verses 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, or John, bore witness about him, that's Jesus, and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So verse 14, I mean, uh, we just recently this last, this year preached through the book of Exodus. And um, I'm not sure if you guys remember this from when we preached through the book of Exodus. But in the book of Exodus, there is this whole thing about God giving all these uh, instructions about what his house will look like at the end of the book. I don't know, do you guys remember this? Chapter 30 to 38 of Exodus, all about the tabernacle setup, right? All the pillars, this is how the, this is the big sanctuary part, this is the little sanctuary part, this is the Holy of Holies where the Ten Commandments are, and anybody who's seen Indiana Jones, right? The, 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 the Ten Commandments part where, you know, melts your face off, that part's in the middle because God's too holy to come near, all the tabernacle parts. The word tabernacle is actually what's used here in John 1.14, it's actually, the, the Greek word is the same one from Exodus, and it means, so the word became flesh, right? That word dwelt right there. He tabernacled among us. That means that this story of Exodus is supposed to be kind of, you're supposed to kind of import that, that whole story, the whole book of Exodus, right into verse 14. You're supposed to think the story of God coming in to break their loyalty to idols and pagan gods, to open their hand by his gracious presence among them, to be eager and in praise to God. That story of God changing them from people who are enslaved to children that he dwells among is imported right here, which means that it is a bigger, better, truer story of the book of Exodus in the person of Jesus He comes to break our loyalty, our love for sin and darkness. He comes to put his hand inside ours and break our hands from holding the knife that would kill us. He comes in to break our loyalty to sin so that we can then become loyal and eagerly children of God, right? You see how this story is going in the the first chapter of of John, where he is, Jesus is taking on these massive realities, right? He is the one about the whole universe orbits around, our reality. He's the one that is our identity, our functional, right? How do we think about ourselves? Who am I? The axis of our identity begins to orbit around Jesus. And here, our loyalty, how we live our days, Right? We're near, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now identified. We are now loyal to Jesus. But that sounds kind of fun. What does that mean? Well, look down here with me, verse 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, Moses was the big, big hero, the superhero of the Old Testament. And it's not a contrast between Moses and Jesus, right? It's not or a contrast between the law and Jesus even, right? The law was good. The law showed them. This is God's gracious character. We just read it this, after, this evening, right? Be holy as God is holy. Treat other people the way God's graciously treated you. That's the whole point of the law, But the point of the law could never have saved us, right? You can't read the Old Testament enough to be able to save your soul. It can't break your loyalty to sin. It can expose it. 
It can shine a light on it, and it can show you what it's like to live a life with God, but it cannot, it cannot break your death grip on sin. See, that's why it says, the law came through Moses. It exposed your heart, but grace and truth, the grace to, to loosen your grip on sin and to reach out for God's truth, that only comes through Jesus. And I love how John points out here as Moses, basically a role model or a hero, right? We, we tend to like uh, role models and heroes because they tend to say something about us, right? I don't know. Uh, I like Captain America because I just like the good guy who's just a good guy who does good things and is, you know, strong and patriotic and cares about people. But some people like, you know, we like comic book characters because not only do we like them for what they do, but we like them for what they say about us, right? We, we even have, so this last week we had the, um, uh, in the city we had a, uh, a comic book convention last week, I'm sure Adam could tell me more about it, uh, where people dress up as comic book characters, right? And it's because they want, they, something about the, the identity and the story of that character says something about who they want to be and who they are, Right? Um, it's why you, in business you have, you know, if, if Warren Buffett's your dude or Steve Jobs, that's why we read biographies about Steve Jobs for all the weirdness of who he was in some ways. Like, dude's brilliant, and I want, I, there's something I want to learn from him, right? Our heroes say something about who not only we think about, the way we think about ourselves, but the way we want to be. So when it says, from his fullness, that's Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace, the story of Jesus now becomes our gracious story. And what, what was Jesus' story? He came and lived a life. I mean, have you ever thought about this? For 30, we have, no, we have virtually no record or very little record of the first 30 years of Jesus' life, which honestly were probably very similar to ours. He worked a job. He had neighbors, probably neighbors that were potentially annoying, and he loved them. He was gracious. He was kind. Just normal, everyday life. And then he began to serve people and tell people about the good news of God. And he laid down his life. But he did it in a unique way. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I'm sorry that we're not going to preach through the whole book of John. But the whole book of John is about these last five words. He has made him known. The first half of the book of John is all about Jesus' ministry. The last half, right, the last 11 chapters are all devoted to the last week and the last days of Jesus. That is where Jesus made God most clearly, most brightly seen is on the dark, gory reality of the cross. When Jesus let himself, right? He was not subjected to it. He let himself be nailed to the cross and lifted up and hung between heaven and earth. That is where Jesus fulfilled these words. He has made him known. Everything that Jesus said in his ministry was already in the Bible, but he actualized and he changed the world, not by merely repeating the Old Testament, but by fulfilling this promise of God that he would break the hold of sin upon his people. He would graciously come in and send his son to make us sons and daughters to redefine our identity by sending the one who created all things to change our loyalty to sin 
to being loyalty to God through the death of his loyal son, right? Jesus comes and dies in our place. He graciously shows us God's glory in the cross, which is why I just I have to always go back to this. This is why we talk about being gospel-centered. We will always, forever, as long as I have breath in my lungs, King's Cross will be focused on the gospel because in Jesus' death on the cross, that is where we see the gracious, smiling face of God upon our dark, dismal, sinful, broken realities, right? The cross, don't ever think about the cross as Jesus taking some sort of divine child abuse in our place. (laughs) The Father, it was the Father's idea to save us. And Jesus agreed, we want to save sinners to know us. And so Jesus comes to reveal the heart of God, to graciously save us from our sins, to change our loyalty to our death grip on sin, to a life grip upon Jesus. But Jesus centers our loyalty so that we are now focused and have hope, not because sin wins the day, but because Jesus has taken care of the curse of sin on our lives. Our access to God is through Jesus' gracious cross. Our loyalties are broken to sin because his glory was being broken for our sin. And we could end here, right? We could end this and say, this is what it means, right? This is what it means for Jesus to be our only access point, right? He has taken care of our sin. He has taken care of all the things that would separate us from God, right? The the church could never do this. Only Jesus could. And he does it for all of life, right? There's no separation in what sins Jesus died for, right? It wasn't the mortal sins and then something about the venial sins get taken. He took on the full darkness of our lives, from the little shades of gray about the white lies we told yesterday to the dark realities of our sins that give a, a strong clenched fist to God. Jesus took care of all that darkness, and we could end there. But we're gonna, I want us to pick up verse 19 and 20 because I think there's a functional pa- reality to this that John... John picks up for us. Jesus centers our testimony. So verse six through eight, we get introduced to John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. That's the word, and uh, through Jesus. John, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And then down to verse 19 and 20. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? They're asking an identity question, right? Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I think this is some of the most brilliant pastoral writing I've ever read. I've never written this, actually. I could write it out. So, Wouldn't that be funny if I just said, hey, guys, I think this is the most brilliant thing I've ever written and you should read it. I think it's some of the most brilliant pastoral writing I've ever read. I'm going to get over this. Because I think John, as he is laying out, look, what this huge, massive picture about who Jesus is. He is our reality. He centers our identity. He centers our, our loyalties. This huge, massive picture about who Jesus is. And the first place he goes, right, when is the first thing that people say about it? well, that's not me. <laughs> that's not me. Jesus, that's Jesus. 
It's not me. I am not the Christ. There are a, a million good things that God has made in this world. He has made us to be a people together, a church. Right? He's made us to have spouses and to have friends and to have kids and to have jobs that we enjoy and to have hobbies and to have good food and drinks that just are delicious and amazing and awesome. He's created amazing smells for us to enjoy. Amazing cities and skyscrapes and mountains and amazing things for us to enjoy. But they are all not the Christ. They will not provide. They will not center our realities. They will not center our identities. They could never change our loyalties. These are all good things, but at the time of the Reformation, some of those things had taken on a central, displacing moment, putting Jesus to the side. The church, and the church as a power institution, had become the Christ. Remember how we were saying at the beginning? They were dispensing merits. Nobody gets to do that but Jesus. Nobody gets, to, nobody gets to give merits of who gets accepted with God and who doesn't. Only Jesus gets to do that. The church had begun to implicitly say, we are the Christ. That's why I think the Apostle John, when he reports about John the Baptist, verse 20, he confessed and did not deny but confessed, right? He confessed twice, like extra double confessed. Like you could actually probably put this in all caps and bold and underline. I am not the Christ. Guys, I love being your pastor. It is a joy to walk beside you and watch Jesus change you and grow you. I am not your Christ. I will disappoint you. I just want you to know that. I will say something that is inaccurate, untrue, unhelpful, I will not respond to a text or an email or a phone call in an appropriate manner at an appropriate time. I take days off. I will go to sleep. Jesus does not take days off. Jesus does not sleep. Jesus is always there to answer prayers. He is always there to hear you. He is always there to deal with your sin because he's paid for all of it. He knows all of your sins. He knows all the sins you don't even know about. He knows more sins about you because he paid for every one of them. I can only know what you tell me and maybe a few things that I see. Jesus is the Christ. I want you to know, I want you to hear this from my lips. I am not your Christ. And I want us just to say, look at each other and just, can we just right now look at each other and say, I am not the Christ. And then look again at each other and say, you are not the Christ. (laughs) we are not the Christ. We are not, we, we often take on these things like my family, they will, they will fix me. My family will fix me. If I just have enough time, time will fix me. My job, my job will fix me. My job will give me identity and security. My friends, they will give me identity and security. This music will be an escape and be my identity and security. These books, these commitments, these hobbies, these things are all good things, but they are not the Christ. Jesus alone who knows the full depths of your life and your brokenness and your desperate need for God's grace. 
He is the only one. <laughs> he is the only one. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the only one, always and only, will give you infinite, eternal life that will never end. There is not a valve to the life that Jesus gives. It is ever-flowing and constant. Verse 16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The power that you need to walk in holiness and forgiveness and loyalty and love There is not a valve that Jesus cuts off for you. He constantly gives it to you. He is the only one who gives you grace upon grace, right? Because, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I have not seen God face to face. You have not seen God face to face. Jesus has seen and is the face of God. He is the one that his glory on the cross gives you infinite, eternal, secure access, infinite joy that you need only in and through Jesus. I love that we are a church together. This church will not be the Christ. I love the family of churches that we're a part of. Sovereign Grace Churches is not the Christ. I love that we are in Manchester, and I love that we're serving the people of Manchester. Manchester and the people of Manchester are not the Christ. I love being your pastor. I am not the Christ. I love that you guys have great jobs and do great work in your cities and in our neighborhoods. Those things are not the Christ. Jesus alone gives life, eternal life, eternal grace, eternal joy to satisfy you. Christ alone, always and only, is a center of the Christian life. Do not commit a gospel heist by trying to pretend that you are the Christ. We talked about the heist at the beginning. The way that you do that is by functionally trying to think, I can fix this person. I can fix this on my own. I can do this. You can't. And you will never be able to. Jesus alone is your savior, your king, your comforter, your source of life and grace and hope and joy. Jesus alone, always and only, is the center of the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have Jesus to care for us, to love us, to be the center of our reality and our identity to change our loyalties, and to be the center of our testimony. So, Father, as we confess him together, do we enjoy him together. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.